0: Hi, this is John Mulder, Executive Director of the Trillium Institute, along with Jason Becrow, welcoming you to Palliative Matters. We're palliative doctors who treat patients and families who are dealing with difficult medical circumstances, and we'd like to share with you what we've learned along the journey. How are you doing today, Jay? I'm doing great, John. How are you today? I'm doing fine, thanks. It's been, uh, it's been a good day feeling encouraged, and you know a little positive kick in the step is always good, and so it's, it's, it's great to be back together with you. In previous episodes, uh, we've had some conversations about patients' values and goal orientation and decision-making, and that still kind of weighs heavy on me. And I know that uh, when we've talked in the past, you've had some uh, circumstances uh, that you thought were really worthy of conversation, things that are just kind of weighing on you and that might be worthy of discussion. So what what, what do you have for us today?
1: You know... As we were discussing that concept of patient stressors and family burdens, I see people oftentimes beating themselves up with the sense that uh, they see their loved one in a dire situation and there's like a complex maze. And if they make every right decision at every step of the way, they'll navigate their uh, loved one out and they'll survive and they'll be back to normal and everything will be fine. And it's all on them to make those decisions uh, when the patient is no longer able to make decisions themselves. And so, yeah, I've been thinking about a family I met over uh, uh, Thanksgiving. We, we, we literally met on Thanksgiving day. This was a gentleman who had advanced cancer. Kind of some of the things, there's, there's a lot of um, complicating factors here. First of all, he was a young man, uh, middle-aged. I believe he was in his 50s. He had advanced lymphoma. And sadly, uh, he had had a history of losing weight and actually feeling palpable lymph nodes, lymphadenopathy in various parts of his body for months before seeking medical care. And again, a lot of complicating factors for that. When he was finally came into the hospital last fall, he was diagnosed with advanced stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma started on chemotherapy. Unfortunately, his body had a hard time with that and was declining pretty rapidly. And so I met him on Thanksgiving day. He was on dialysis. He was having a tough time breathing and he was septic. And there was concern that the, the, the patient you know, could be dying. And again, I met the family and they were so distraught that had they made right decisions to that point, and will they be making right decisions going forward? First and foremost, this man was in a dire situation. Uh, this wasn't a simple make the right choice and he walks out of here or make the wrong choice and he doesn't. And so I tried to relieve them of that burden and let them see you know, everything that was going on. And then I tried to prepare them for things that could happen in a sequential fashion and empower them to make the decisions that would be right for them at that time many medical professionals are are familiar with the concept of discussing code status, right? That had never been done yet before for this patient. Uh, There was no advanced care plan. There was no uh, definitive advanced, uh, um, excuse me, durable power of attorney. Thankfully the gentleman uh, was married and his parents, the the wife's in-laws were very, very close. And so for all meetings we had, we met as a foursome, uh, the two parents, the patient's spouse. And the first thing we did was empower them to know that we didn't have to force any decision at this time. There was a desire to establish code status. At that time, the patient was full code. So what I described was rather than make definitive decisions now, let's see where this may take us. And rather than try to answer everything at once, let's just try to come up with a a list of possibilities. And and they found that very helpful. I tried to work very uh, diligently to earn the patient and their family's trust, to let them know that as things came up, we would be there to help them make sense of what they were dealing with, and that they would always be empowered to make choices that were right for them. At that particular moment, and so it kind of took some of the um, all-or-nothing uh, mentality out to try to diffuse that a bit. After a, a day or so after I'd met the patient, he uh, rapidly declined during dialysis. He was sent to the intensive care unit. He was intubated uh, and initially needed pressure support medications to help keep his blood pressure up. And that's when uh, we met for a third time. We had met every day. And I'm really glad that I was able to meet the patient before all of this cascade occurred. That's not always the case, as you well know. Um, But because we had built trust in the uh, days leading up to that, and now that he is on mechanical ventilation and considering other life support, we were able to focus on where he had been, where he is now. The family was very gracious um, as I was describing the science of their situation. I knew that prayer was very important to them. And so I had asked permission and they had asked me to pray with them and pray for them. In fact, it was kind of beautiful. They prayed for me and I prayed for them Hmm. and it was a a fair trade-off. We then delved into what the patient himself, not necessarily what I want as the patient's doctor, what the spouse wants as his patient's wife, but what would the patient want if he was in this situation? And it allowed her with the uh, support of her in-laws, to say that, yeah, our loved one would want to fight for a finite period. Let's do everything we can. Let's leave no stone unturned. But if we get to a point where, and you'll start to hear phrases, right? If I'm going to be a vegetable or if, uh, you know, quality of life is going to be severely compromised, then our loved one would not want that. And so it allowed them to put sort of a finite time frame on how long to stay on the ventilator. Two days later, the patient's condition was continuing to decline. And that's when we readdressed code status once again. And it was one of the most difficult things for the spouse to actually put her name on that document. And I could totally understand why. But because of the conversations we had had for days before, she was able to verbalize, I don't want to lose my husband. But if we do get to that point to where his heart stops, that's a sign from God and it's time to let him be at peace. And she was empowered to say that. Later that night, that's exactly what happened. And the reason I bring this up is because if we don't empower the family to know that there's not necessarily a perfect right answer, sometimes after their loved one dies, they can be burdened with the sense of, should I have done this or should I have done that? I was, I was really pleased soon after the new year, I got a message uh, from the patient's spouse, wishing me a happy new year, thanking me for all that our team had done for her and the family, that they were grieving, but they were uh, grieving in a way uh, with gratitude, too, to the great care that they had received. And she thanked me for helping her understand where her husband was and that there were, in fact, choices. And she made the choices that her husband would want. And so with tears in her eyes, we, uh, we left the conversation and um, I thought it was quite beautiful. But it came from... First, building a relationship with the family, working hard to earn their trust. Again, to all uh, uh, medical professionals on the call here, especially students, remember our degree and our white coat, that's the entree. But don't assume people will give you credibility or trust you just because of the letters after your name. It's, 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 it's who you are, the letters in your name that will do that. So own that, respect that, and make it a point to earn that. Because once you do, your patients will go places with you that are very difficult to go. Uh, But once you've earned that trust, it's very necessary. And they will go there with you. And again, um, when this gentleman passed away, I think the guilt burden was very, very different for the patient and family. They were very uh, um, quickly able to focus on their gratitude. Their spirituality said that their loved one now Uh, was with other loved ones, and that they felt that they had left no stone unturned, all care options were exhausted, their loved one did not suffer unnecessarily, and it was the best outcome in a very dire situation.
0: One of the things that I think is so important that you touched upon is that would not have happened without the development of a relationship. So I want to get just hypothetical with you just a second. Let's do it. This, this gentleman presented the way he did.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I could anticipate that the outcome would have been exactly the same whether you had been involved or not. He was going to decompensate. He was going to have challenges that, are, that arose medically. He ultimately was not going to survive this, this insult in any way. So- What would that have looked like in those handful of days had you and your team not been involved?
1: I think if we would have assumed uh, the imperative that we do everything, uh, that, that, that death and death only is the enemy, and we don't focus on quality of life issues, especially the quality of life for the patient's family and how we can best support and empower them, I think the family's left with a constant set of, uh, do you want to try option A or option B? Assuming that one is right and one is wrong. To your point, I think no matter what options medically were chosen, I knew when we met on Thanksgiving Day, there was a greater than 90% and maybe greater than 99% that this man was not going to survive this hospitalization. It was probably going to pass away within days to maybe weeks. I thought it was incredibly unlikely he'd be with us at Christmas time. And so I wanted to, as I built a relationship and earned the trust of the family, make them aware of, of these, these very stark realities from the perspective of once you're prepared for a worst-case scenario, now you can hope and pray for more. To get back to your question, had we not intervened. I think the patient still would have passed, probably at the exact same time, but the family would have been left wondering, should I have done something else? Could I have done something more? Did I let my loved one die? Did I let my loved one down? Did they die because of poor decisions that I made? And those are things that a person will take with them for the rest of their lives, And we as a medical group, as medical professionals, as caring, compassionate scientists, we have the power to help them see that that is a burden that they not need carry alone, and perhaps not need carry at all.
0: So let me just interject a a bit of uh, self-serving advertising here. For those that may not necessarily be familiar with what palliative care is or what palliative care teams do. What Jay described is what an inpatient palliative care team in a hospital does in walking through the illness with patients and families. Mm-hmm. And I tend to be biased. I think that everyone who has a life-defining illness deserves and should have the benefits of a palliative care team walking with them for the very reasons that you outline. It's going to help with decision-making. It's going to provide some empowerment. It's going to clarify the values that come into play. It's going to be able to help crystallize goals. It will make someone understand that they, as a family member, are not responsible for the life or death of their loved one. That's happening no matter what. But how it's going to be processed and how they're going to negotiate Mm -hmm. this, how they're going to manage that journey is is what's so critical and so important here. And that's what a palliative care team does. So that's my advertisement. And I guess maybe since we have the name palliative in the title of our of our podcast. It shouldn't
1: be a surprise that we advocate for that. Absolutely. And, and when, when it's really working well is when, you know, you walk into the ICU and there's the uh, uh, pulmonary critical care specialist and there's the neurologist and there's the nephrologist and there's the cardiologist. And you, you, you put enough ologists in the room, the poor family, you know, Oh my gosh, who, who, who's leading here and whatnot. And again, one of the most important things we'll do is try to take all the information and then translate it. We talk about communication and communication skills. And, you know, a lot of this is still done in English. Yeah. Not true English. <laughs> there's a, there's a um, different dialects, so to speak. And, and, and you and I have been trained to speak a, a medical dialect. And so we're translators But it all comes back to helping people understand where they are, what the situation is, what their options are, and then most importantly, empowering them based on that information, that knowledge to make informed choices that are right for them at that particular time. Again, remember what, what a patient will choose today you know, what, what a patient chooses on day one of a cancer diagnosis and what they choose on day 101 or 1,001 could likely be very different. It's not our job to say it's all uh, locked in stone. Uh, we, we continue to assess. Uh, but when you put everyone together with the patient and their family and you can translate and they feel informed, they've made choices, even when the outcome I mean, let's face it, a lot of times the outcome doesn't change. The patient dies. But how they get there and how the family understands the teams working together, how they understand all parties advocating or maybe feeling that they're not, did they feel heard, valued, respected? Did their loved one get every option that was available to them? Did they have a good death? those outcomes can change greatly based on what we aspire to do as a palliative team, working collaboratively with our colleagues. And when that happens, my reward is oftentimes either a card after the fact. I I love, I've got in my office, a a big basket and it's full of cards. And I say, you know, you could take all my money, but you can't have that basket because that (laughs) that's my pot of gold. Yeah. And not infrequently, it'll be uh, in one of the aisles of the supermarket. Right. I can be at Meyer at an odd hour looking for a jug of milk and there's someone and when you get a hug with tears, you know you did something well. And uh and that's pretty gratifying. What we do matters.
0: Palliative matters. Thanks again uh for uh for, for sharing the story, Jay, and and thank you all for listening in. And this conversation is not done. There's so much to talk about and to dissect relative to the issue of relationships. And communication and values and goals. And we'll look forward to sharing more stories again. Thanks again on behalf of myself, John Mulder, Dr. Jason Beckrow, and the Trillium Institute for listening to Palliative Matters. Have a wonderful day.